Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Everyone Talks to Liz. You're listening to your way station for inspiration. That's what I'm calling it. I mean, do you have a dream or, you know what, let me rephrase this. Did you have a dream, but life interrupted and you put it on the back burner to shrivel up and then kind of toss into the trash can of life? After listening to my podcasts, I'm going to say this. You will get up and go fish that dream out of the trash can and revive it. We're the olive oil. We're the Mrs. Dash. We're everything but the bagel spice from Trader Joe's and and sort of that heat for that dream because each story we bring you will leave you asking yourself, why not me? Against incredible odds, my podcast guests kept forging ahead through emotional storms, walls, all kinds of things to reach amazing heights. That's where you, Khan, comes in. You might not have heard of her, but every single adult in China, and by the way, yes, we counted, we went on the census and we found there are 1.1 billion adults in China, the land of 1.4 billion people, they all know her. She's known as the sort of Oprah of China, wildly successful talk show host, best-selling author of nine books, and the founder of a cosmetics brand so successful that French beauty giant L'Oreal bought it for hundreds of millions of dollars. But if you dig deeper beneath the glittering front cover of this story of Use Icon, you will find a story so inspirational you ask yourself, why not me too? I am honored to welcome Yusai Khan. Nice to see you, Liz. Oh, so great. Now, let, let's just let people know this. You're an American citizen yes. battling the crowds of New York City and the world every day. But let's take our listeners on sort of a virtual trip to Guilin. Oh, Is that yeah. your province where you were born? Yes. This is, by the way, a land of mountains and rivers in the southern part of China, thousands and thousands of miles from the bustling Beijing, right? It's 1949. The communists have just won the Chinese Revolution. And Yusai Khan comes into the world. Go. <laughs> it's a very interesting story, actually. Uh, many years ago, I went to Guilin, where I was born. You know, when you see, you think of China, you see, you think of these huge, gigantic, strange-looking mountains. You know, with with the rivers underneath it, and you you think that they, these these sceneries don't really exist, but they exist because they are absolutely stunning. This is what they call Karst Mountains. Anyway, I was born in Guilin. It really is better than born in some kind of a. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's yeah. an urban choked <laughs> area with lots of smog or people. Guilin is truly beautiful. Anyway, so I was born there. Many years ago, I went there, and, and somebody told me, oh, well, I know your father, and I know this name, but uh, the house that we, you were born in was torn down. And then last year, I went back there. Somebody tricked me and went to this beautiful, amazing garden. It is 260 acres garden with a lot of Qing dynasty, beautiful red and black houses, beautiful. And they walked me towards this stunning house called the Princess Pavilion, and and they said, please look at the plaque or next to the door. So I went to the plaque, and the door says, Princess Pavilion, in parenthesis, it says, Yusai Khan lived here. 
<gasps> and it said that I was in this house until I was two years old, and chills went through my back. <laughs> and you talk about Guili, that is the story. That is an amazing story that I found where I was born. <gasps> you know, just you know, just I didn't search for it, but somebody searched for me. You know, it was really wonderful. What were your parents' professions at the my time father, that you were born? Yes, and the the reason why I was born in this amazing looking place is because at that time the University of Guangxi, which my where where my father was a professor, and he was teaching, uh, uh, he was teaching literally in those houses there, and, uh, and and that's the reason why I was in that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Qing Dynasty house built in 1869. Wow! But it's really? post Korean War time. Mao Zedong declares that the nation would quote lean to the east, meaning that the Soviet Union and the Communist bloc would be its principal allies. What did it mean? to be a child growing up in the 50s in China? Well, I don't know so much because I, I was two years old. I left China. My parents, being intellectuals, were really scared. And so they, too, left and went to Hong Kong with absolutely nothing with them. What would and have happened the, to them if they hadn't? Oh, well, you know, every horrible things that happened during the Cultural Revolution would have happened to them because they were intellectuals and they came from landowners' families. So they had land, they had all kinds of stuff. And so those those are the people that they, 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 under communism did not survive too well. And then it went into the Cultural Revolution. It would have been really disastrous. More than a million people were murdered and killed yeah. well, through all of this. You know, it, lots of bad things happened during that time. And I just did not happen to have experienced that because my parents left already, you know, went to Hong Kong. So we were literally refugees in Hong Kong. So we, my parents really had such um, incredible bravery, you know, courage to leave China and to go to Hong Kong. What are your earliest memories of Hong Kong? Because you go from this bucolic province of rivers and greenery to this pulsating, flashy world of Hong Kong. Oh, it's no, like no, Vegas. No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. At that time, you know, in the early 50s, it's nothing like what you're thinking. What was Today, it like? it's so gleaming and yes. so beautiful and it's amazing. But in those days, Hong Kong was a real fishing village. It was a very, very you know, very poor uh, place. But it was run by the British. And the British, of course, built uh, wonderful schools. And the, the, the missionaries built wonderful schools. I went to, sc I went to uh, nunnery school. I went to Marinor Convent School in Hong Kong. So I went to really, really good schools. And of course, you know what it's like to be a colony, right? I mean, you live in the colon colonial world. You are... You don't read. Your Chinese is never the main language. My parents care a great deal that I would speak good English than Chinese because, in those days, you know, priority is number one, and all the best jobs in Hong Kong were given to the British. So that's how we were raised in in Hong Kong. You're still one of millions of children in the region, and at yeah. at what point are you old enough to formulate the thought of? I'm going to be different, I'm going to stand out, and, and people are going to know who I am. No, no, I never thought that way at never? all. Never? I never thought that way. I just knew that I wanted to go to America. That was just the thought I had. I wanted to go to America. And so uh, it, it, it's really peculiar because I became a Mormon. Uh, I was baptized Mormon. 
the Mormon missionaries one day came to me and said, "I was a very good church member. Okay, I was, uh, I was, I, I was. I, of course, I church. I went to church every week, and I taught Sunday school. I created a children's percussion band. I played the piano for the church. I tried to, I, I tried to translate the Chinese hymnal, the the Mormon." Uh, Himmel. and it was it was really a very wonderful time, and I was only twenty fourteen years old, fifteen years old when we were baptized. So you're seventeen now, yeah. and you no, decide- sixteen, sixteen, no, fifteen. I said to my mommy, I said, look, uh, the Mormon missionaries came to me and said they would like to give me a scholarship to go to Brigham Young University in Hawaii, Ooh. and this is a university that is really for the Pacific Islanders, like the Fijians, Maoris. Uh, the the Tongans, uh, the oh my God! I mean, these people that you know, they were just wonderful, wonderful islanders. And so my 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 college years were I grew up with those people. But what was it like to land on American soil, I, Hawaii? Oh, I, I, well, it was really sad, you know, because I was only sixteen years old when I left Hong mm-hmm. Kong. And I remember in those days, I don't know about America, in those days, my, your uncles, aunties, nieces, nephews, and mothers, and fathers, and sisters, and mates, everybody went to the airport to say <laughs> goodbye to you, right? I mean, I still have pictures of those, and this is hilarious, you know. And of course, I was crying like a baby, and my mommy was crying like a baby. And so went to America. So yeah, of course, that's my dream at the age of 15, 16. And I wanted to go to America. I had a chance to go to a school. Uh, that gave me three scholarships. One is a real cash scholarship, and the other two were working scholarships. So I worked my through my truly. I worked myself through college. What perplexed you in the beginning about American life? Perplexed me. <laughs> no, what saddened me was that I missed my home so much. Mm-hmm. I was only sixteen in those days. I would. I don't want need to tell you. I, Sixteen was very young in those days. You don't, we don't, we don't know we didn't know anything in those days. I mean, we were very ignorant, right? So being there alone by myself, I had no relatives, nobody. I knew nobody. I was just there for school, and what perplexed me. Nothing perplexed me. I loved it because Hawaii was such a land of mixture of people, and it was. Truly, an amazing eye opener. I mean, me being a Chinese girl raised in Hong Kong, I'm serious. Uh, when would I ever have a chance to meet the Maoris or the Tongans, and the Fijians, <laughs> and, and the Samoans? You know, I mean, to to be with those people was just amazing to me. What was your first trip to the mainland, and to which state oh, did okay. you go? When I was 21, or so, when after I graduated, mm-hmm. and. I said to my parents, I, I want to go to New York City. Now, what, now I have friends in those days from Hawaii said, I kept saying to everybody, one day I go to America. I, I'm, no, no. I, one day I go to New York. One day. Now, don't ask me why, because I actually do not know why. But I just knew that I wanted to go to New York. It is the biggest city in the world. And I said, every young woman should go to the biggest city in the world. And I don't know how I came up with the idea, but I came up with the idea like I wanted to go to America. Right? But you entered a beauty contest, right, in Hawaii, put on by the local, what, Chinese Chamber of Commerce? The, I, I love the name, the Narcissus Flower Pageant. But yeah. you didn't win. I would never win. I knew <laughs> that. Well, the reason is because 
because I was a I was a student from Hong Kong. Uh, they would not want a Chinese student from Hong Kong to win a, a, a beauty title that actually belongs to the Hawaiians. They, this woman is to the queen was to represent the Hawaiian Chinese culture mm-hmm. and went around the world. I was I was just thrilled that I even became a princess. I don't like I I don't mind being a princess. Do you? So you you won the princess title. You came I, in second. I came I came to the conclusion that it's always more fun to be a princess than, than to queen. be a queen. I know the queen has so many responsibilities. The princess we're just there having fun. <laughs> you know. <that's, laughs> and you know I'm named after Queen Elizabeth. I wish I were named after a princess. All right. 23, you move to New York City. Um, suddenly, you're you're forming a production company. I mean, a lot of people who were born here, Yusai, don't have the courage or even know how to do that. How did you? Actually, it came a little bit later because I did pick up a couple of jobs. You know, and one was a PR job, and one was an advertising marketing. Um, uh, agency. I learned a lot from those experiences because, well, like every job, you learn a lot of experiences, right? And it's it's wonderful to be able to be in a PR company that was uh, run by a very famous man called Robert Tablinger. And I remember, I mean, I, I learned how to write press releases. Oh, it was so much fun because I got to meet people like um, Harry, uh, Carrie Grant, you know, people like that, because that's what the agency represented. You know, Betty Davis was was engaged to Mr. Tablinger for a couple of times or something like that. <laughs> I mean, for a young woman like me, who really still didn't know much of anything, it was really glittery. It was very special life, you know. I mean, to to be able to take them to Chinatown to eat. Can you imagine taking Cary Grant to Chinatown to eat? <laughs> and they had such a great time because I, I did the ordering, right? <laughs> that much I can I can do. I mean, it was really fun, you know, here this huge, gigantic limo going through Chinatown. <laughs> You know, and I'm telling you, it was like, it was my life is like a dream. Even from that, at any point, did you think I'm the daughter of refugees? This is happening to me, or <laughs> I'm making this happen? Well, I never actually, even though we were refugees, I never thought of myself as refugees because the word is not very pleasant. But my parents were special people. They made me feel that I could have anything I wanted. I would say I wanted to play the piano. They would find the best Russian piano teacher to teach me how to play the piano. They would even drive me there every week in order to get my piano lesson. They, they. I wanted to learn the ballet, and my parents would find the best ballet school. So in other words, they would sacrifice whatever they had to sacrifice to give me whatever I wanted to have. So I never... I never fa- once felt that I never once felt that we were poor, mm-hmm. but I'm sure we were poor. But we were not really rich people. So you have the guts. You move to New York City. You're you're living this life, and eventually, you start to put together the production company. You had a mm-hmm. weekly series called Looking East. Yes, yes. And it opens the door for what Americans to the the Middle Kingdom of China. Um, yes, yes. I have to tell you, when I was doing that series. 
at the beginning, it was just a talk show. It's just a talk show. So it's like you and me here, mm-hmm. one camera, a gun, um, you and my. It was the easiest show to do. I mean, easiest thing to do in the world, right? I would interview anyone that had anything to do with Asia. Remember, Vol, uh, Gal v- or Gal Vidal just came back from Inner Mongolia. I grabbed him, put him on oh, the Gore show. Oh, Vidal. If I see um, an expert on um, Japanese Netsuge, I would put him on the show and talk about Netsuge. So in other words, I would put anyone that has anything to do with Asia. Look, he said about Asia. Of course, a lot of that has to do with China. And I was really, I was very happy because I was learning so much about China. I was learning so much about Asia and Asian culture. And it was a talk show. Then... Then we began. It was a, it was just a, a uh, um, a uh, a cable talk show. Cable just started at that time. I had to. I remember. I had to cycle, bicycle, twelve tapes to go to twelve different stations in order to keep this show as a national show. So you know, the, the, those days were were way way over there. You know, I mean, we we bicycling twelve shows. Oh 12, 12 my days, uh, God. So, Imagine, so I was, uh, I, I was actually, to be honest with you, I, um, you know, I was really the first one to do all those shows around Asia. I, when we finally found some sponsors, I actually went on location to those places. Which brings me to this. When does the People's Republic of China start to notice that one of their own, even though you had moved to Hong Kong, is becoming really... a business tour de force and award-winning television star. Well, that wasn't real. That's a little bit uh, exaggeration. I mean, it was a small little show, but but the head of PBS watches my show, and at that time it was a woman called Joan Connors, and she was head of PBS here. Well, what is happening is is 1984, in two days before October one. Two days before October 1. October 1 is significant because it's Chinese Independence Day, mm-hmm. okay? And 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 they came to me and said, Yusai, we have signed a, a, a historic um, contract between China, PBS, and CCTV, which is the national broadcaster. Sure. And CCTV and signed a contract. And we're, this is the very first joint venture between China, historically extremely important, one the first contract between China and and United States on with PBS, and China is to pay for the uplink and downlink is paid for by PBS. It's the thirty fifth anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. It was to be a major parade going down Tiananmen. Okay, and they it, they at that time they had no, they just found out two days before that there was no narration, no nothing, nothing. There was just pictures coming through, pictures coming through. And they said, oh, my God, pictures coming through. How are we going to ever broadcast a show from China? We can't make this fail. So they, they called me. They said, would you, would you, Yusai, please do a show for us uh, off camera? Off camera. When the pictures come in, you just off camera tell us what you're actually looking at. So not, not like Pat, Pat Sajak at the Rose Bowl parade or something. <laughs> You're right. You know, I I said to myself, I said to myself, this is not fair. <laughs> I, mean, I I said to myself, I didn't tell them. I said, well, I said, why would you t- get me off camera? I'm an on camera person. I I I'm as much an expert in this area 
as Walter Cronkite is in his, would you ask ever Walter Cronkite to go off camera? And they said, well, we have nothing against you. It's just that we have a union to worry about. It's $5,000 We to turn on the camera, $5,000. So I said, $5,000, unless you can get, we, we cannot get $5,000 in 48 hours. But if you can do it, then let us know. So I said, give me one hour. <gasps> I got them $5,000. <laughs> <laughs> and they turn on the camera. But my problem is not turning the camera on. You know, the problem really was that at that time in 1984, there was absolutely nothing on China. Zero on China, right? Zero. Because nobody cared about China. Well, China it was also was a closed, closed kingdom. Cold, closed kingdom. So the only place I can actually find is go to some organization that deals with these U.S.-China trade relations and stuff like that and go to the library or, I mean... I know that we could go to the uh, Chinese consulate, but at that time, it was a teeny little little thing, you know, nothing. It was nothing, nothing there. So, wow, it was a lot of work. I didn't sleep for 48 hours to oh. put myself in the position to get literally get on camera. Well, you did it. And as as your career starts to unfold like wings of a butterfly and you start to fly, you start writing books. Let me fast forward to when you began writing books. My first book that I wrote was a book asked to be written by the Minister of Television and Broadcast. I did a TV series for China after the after the 35th anniversary thing. Then they invited me to mainland China. They went to Jap- at, uh, Beijing, and and they, during the conversation, they of course as usual they give you banquets, and then and and they they say you know we really really want to educate the Chinese. They said because China we we're talking about open door policy. What is open door when the, our our citizens do not know a thing about the outside world and how we could open ourselves to the outside world if the outside world knows absolutely nothing about us. So we, we, we need you to see if you can help us. So they want me to produce a series called One World, and that is the series that makes me an absolute household name. And the books and all that comes later. The Minister of Culture, I mean, Minister of, uh, uh, he asked me to, Minister of TV and Broadcast, asked me to do a series a series about the world, right? So so that the book comes after that. And they say, we want you to write about how you produce this series. And it is 102 parts of series. And they wanted to know how, in those days, there is no real television in China. The only things they have is they're broadcasters that read scripts that has been written by some propaganda person. And so it's not real television, and the minister wants people to learn. So I wrote the book really for that reason. Later on, I did write a book on etiquette, but that book was written by at the urged by the Minister of Culture. He said that, you know, China is very good now with with uh, hardware, but the software is really atrocious. We know nothing about international etiquette because they have been so enclosed. Well, define etiquette. What what did you mean? What well, didn't they know, know? How to greet people? How to behave? They how don't to... even know how to shake hands. How do you shake hands? Don't you put your palm against somebody else's palm? Correct. The Chinese will give you three fingers and four fingers. I mean, seriously, I'm very serious. You know, and also sometimes they would, they would squeeze you. First of all, they don't even dare really shake a woman's hand. That's the reason why, right? I mean, they're so gingerly they're shaking woman's hand. It's shaking hands is a completely new idea. <laughs> I mean, the Chinese bow to each other. Remember, 
I mean, shaking hands is new. I mean, you think that eating forks with forks and knife is something new? It's not at all. I mean, when it comes to a sp- a spaghetti, you know, they're totally stumped. They, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> How about looking in people's eyes directly? No, it's very hard for them. It's actually impolite to look into people's eyes. So you so have to teach have them to tell, the Western way. We have to tell them that it's not impolite. It is. It is polite. I mean, that is hard. It's not easy. Was it hard for Chinese back then to smile? Well, when they smile and giggle, it is, it's okay. They do smile, but when they laugh, then they put their hands up their face. You know, <laughs> like that. they don't want to show it. They don't want to show their teeth. Whatever they don't want to show, this is just the way they do this. <laughs> <laughs> so how did this book sell? How, uh, oh, millions, was... millions, because it was used later on. You know, first of all, a lot of uh, schools use it to teach. So people start to see your TV show in China. They mm-hmm. know your name from the books. When was the moment where you suddenly realize this turning point of, oh, my God, a lot of people in this country know who I am. It was a shock because when my show was on the air, I never was in China. I never knew that people were copying my hairdo, where people were learning, were speaking Chinese in a stupid accent like I was trying to speak. <laughs> you have to understand, I didn't speak, I didn't speak Chinese until I signed a contract with CCTV, and it was really hard for me. I mean, I struggled really hard to get this going. Yeah. What What's the accent that you speak? I with spoke now? Cantonese. Cantonese. Okay. I, I know. I speak very good Mandarin now. Well, now. Even though you can tell that I have an accent, however, uh, however, in those days I was it was really hard for me. But you know, I had to. I knew I had to learn to speak it really well in order for me to accept interviews, for me to write books and all of that. So you get to back to China, and what happens? How are people wherever I went? Would be policemen. Would be. Uh, I, 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 the first time I went back, I had, I had to sign that book that I told you about called One World about the making of TV series. The Xinhua News book, bookstore had to have 150 policemen. People lined up five hours to get my book. It was very touching. It really touching. That must have been a, a moment where you thought, my gosh, I, I, I'm loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Sally Field. Oh, they like me. But, okay, because apparently you don't see barriers at all to any dream that you have. Let's get to the point where you started a cosmetics company in a country where at the time they didn't really wear makeup. Not at all. As a matter of fact, you know, I just finished my biography and I was, we were struggling with a name. Uh, the, what is it? What do you call a girl from Guilin? I mean, I mean, a little girl from Guilin or a stupid girl from Guilin. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like it's not difficult to talk about all the things I have done, right? So a friend of mine came up with a name, which I think is rather interesting. But it was just about one aspect of my life, of course. It's called A Woman in Red. Or in more precisely, it says, a woman who loves red. Okay, now, what does that actually mean? It has a lot of meanings, and I need to explain to you because you're not from this. In During the Mao era, Mao, Mao Zedong says, women do not like red dresses. It likes 
um, army dresses. What does it mean? It's deep green, deep blue, deep gray, you know, black. Those are the army clothes. Army clothes are the same. And they said, you, women do not prefer to wear red. Okay. So my girlfriend says, I want your book to be called A Woman Who Loves Red or Women in Red. The reason, meaning that I changed literally the Chinese who at that time did not like red from the Mao era, in moving into a completely different era where people do re- re- wear red. So it is a very uh, only a name that 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 Chinese can understand the impact and the exact momentous idea. You know that that you move. Well, it's very from symbolic that, uh, and extremely. And you start with lipstick. I start, <laughs> I, I start with nine lipsticks actually, and uh, nine lipsticks. I do have a very small palette of eyes and foundation mm-hmm. and uh, and four skincare products. But were That's you manufacturing in China? Yeah. At the beginning, my first factory was Shenzhen. We registered in Shenzhen, and at the very beginning, we sent. Uh, bulk of lipsticks made already in America sent because I was so concerned. I couldn't even find a factory manager because there was no factory managers for lipstick, um, for for cosmetics. Because they just didn't wear cosmetics. They didn't have anything. So I, I remember one time I had to I had to take a couple that owned a factory that they just sold to L'Oreal, uh, to, to Shiseido. I took them to China. They lived in China for a year to teach my entire staff. How to make this. How to make this. Cosmetic sure. company. So at the very beginning, they were in bulk. They were really American-made products, but actually tubed in, in, in Shenzhen. And then how big does this very Makeup big. Company we became gets. number one. You know, and in literally from nineteen nineteen ninety, we registered the company, and till nineteen ninety six, we already number one. How many? Had, uh, how many stores counters? Oh, we at that time almost eight hundred counters. <gasps> yeah. Later on, later on, uh, after, when I by the time I sold to L'Oreal about twelve years ago, we had three factories, twenty four. Uh, subsidiary companies, and I sold 800 counters. To L'Oreal, the French beauty giant. Yeah, yeah. How, and they come to you and they say, we want to buy you, Saikon. Actually, P&G came to me first. And then once we knew P&G wanted to buy it, we decided to put it on an auction. Ooh. <laughs> Folks, you can't see her right now, but she has this devilish smile on her face. I love it. So Procter & Gamble first comes in. Then you say, well, wait a minute. I'm not just going to give to the first buyer. No, I do I do think a world of Procter & Gamble. Of mm-hmm. course, at that time, Procter & Gamble was gigantic in China. Mm-hmm. And it, in fact, I brought Procter & Gamble in China in a true sense because I uh, I gave them an advertising spot for my first television show on CCTV. Uh, but so uh, L'Oreal. So finally, four companies ended up auctioning my company. Wow! And the day of the auction, uh, L'Oreal said, "Miss Khan, we would like to uh, give you a preemptive uh, bid." So I said, "Okay." <laughs> I I know you don't give the price, but I'm guessing hundreds of millions of dollars. No comment. Okay, that means yes in my world. What do Americans not understand about China? 
they don't really know how poor China really is. They don't really know how how weak China really is compared to America. I mean, I know that there are a lot of you know they're so worried about this. Yes, they have done extraordinarily well in the last forty years since the opening of China. Right, Deng Xiaoping forty years ago said. We are going to open China. We're going to start with Shenzhen. Remember that that was a historical thing. From that point to today, what is happening in China is what the Americans cannot possibly understand. Because never ever forget about Americans. Even everywhere, anywhere, unless you are really into this world. Like I, I have been in this world. I've been a witness of this whole change, right?、Mm-hmm. I started off with media, and then I'm actually in business. I am feet and fingers into this business, correct? So I deal with this thing, this all these changes, all these years. You have no idea how fast the Chinese have gone and how have they have done. But at the same time, you have no idea. Chinese China is still very far. Behind in many things. For example, military. China is very behind in military. All we see,、US. all we see, Yusai, is they're building man-made islands and they're militarizing them in the South China Sea. And and the impression that some of us get is, oh, these people move quickly. Oh, they do move. Also, they do with a a. a A long-term view of what the world for them should be. How long? Because they they well, seem they to have, have lots every, of patience. Every five years they have the big conference, right? Every five years they set up the the the, the plan. The plan. They have set a national plan. What they're going to do in the next five years? They know already. We're, we're, in America, you know, you're lucky if your plan lasts four years. You know, because by the time the third year comes around, you, you know, president, the president, whoever he is, is already trying to get money for the next election,、mm-hmm. right? So th- basically, they're building islands, but at the same time, they're building amazing things.、Mm-hmm. You know, I was just in Hong Kong from Macau to to Hong Kong. Macau to Hong Kong. We drove on a bridge that is yeah, an hour and an hour and ten minutes long. It's the longest bridge in the world. The Chinese built it. Even the tunnel that goes through, the Chinese built it. And it's amazing what they are doing right now.、I'm, you know, going on the、uh, to to Washington D.C. on the Amtrak is almost like a joke. You can't even go to you can't even go to the bathroom because you'll be falling down before you reach the bathroom. In China, the, the the trains are so beautiful, so beautiful. You can sit there, you can you can sleep, you can you can rest, you can do your computer, you can do all kinds of things, and you can walk around the train. It is. Beautiful, it's smooth like you cannot believe. So I'm hearing you say that they're they're advancing very quickly, and yet they have a long way to go. Of course,、mm-hmm. China is still poor. You know, it's not such a rich country yet. Well, you've managed to do something that very few people on planet Earth have done. You are revered in America and revered, revered、no. in China.、Mm-hmm. Uh, in China, okay, <laughs> okay, I'm loved in China. Yes, you、yeah. saw. I have seen. People fall on the ground in front of you at the Waldorf Astoria at the Plaza. I mean, it's incredible. People respect you. The Chinese government really likes you, though. They honored you with a commemorative postage stamp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Two. What was the second one? What I changed my hair to. <laughs> <laughs> They changed the stamp yes, after yes. you changed your hair. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, don't get so excited. Maybe actually, very few people bought it. 
but, but you know, but but I bought three hundred. If I had known you at that time, I would have sent you a postcard with my own face on it. <laughs> Today, you're doing some important things. You're funding a training course for executives in sustainable fashion. At first, when I heard this, I said, "What? What is this? What is this?" And then you came out with a statistic. The fashion industry is second only to the energy industry when it comes to polluting planet Earth. Yeah, yeah, and China is a huge manufacturer of fashion, so they are responsible for a lot of that. So I really wanted to put together this program together with um, Simon Collins, yeah, <laughs> and we put together this five-day course. And it, the people were so impressed with this course. We had some very big companies. What are you teaching them? Teaching them the fundamental tools or foundational tools, how to move their company into a more sustainable uh, platform, more sustainable. Look, think about it. The Chinese produce most of the genes in this country, in, in the world, in the world, right? Denim. And think about denim. Isn't that the worst thing you can wear? That's why I don't wear denim anymore because it costs. It takes so much water to make it, and the dye is cancer causing. So not only, I mean, you don't feel it because you don't, you don't, you don't know it. But the Chinese who are producing it are getting cancer, and the water that is used is tremendous amount of water, which is a very, very special resource, right? A very rare resource. So in other words, they need to know how to. Turn that formula around, and some so of the, the some of the man-made fabrics do not break down for right. centuries. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So you know, since I, I I chair a thing called China Fashion Gala, I think that it's very important that we understand that we need to do something about it. So we're doing something about it. As you look back, you sigh on all that you've accomplished. If given the chance, would you do anything differently? Such a good question. You know, the Chinese have a saying that 天时地利人和, everything that happens big has to have three elements. 天时, the, the universe, the planets has to be in, 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 in alliance, you know. 天时地利, 地利, the earth has to be ready for it. 人和, people have to be ready for it. So these three elements, if they don't exist, then nothing big can really happen. I'm not so big deal. I'm not a big deal. I happen to be the person there. Truly, is like a cliche. I'm the right person at the right time. Am I not right? I just happen to be there. But I worked my, my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, am I glad to be sitting here with you. What an inspirational story. You, Saikon, thank you so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. Everyone does talk to Liz. All right, everybody who's listening to Liz, thank you so, so much. Please spread the word and tell them to listen to this one with Yusai Khan. OMG, how amazing is this story? And I hope after you hear all of these stories, you say to yourself, why not me too? Why not me too? On behalf of my brilliant producer, Tanya Joseph, I'm Liz Clayman, and I hope you will tell everybody to download Everybody Talks no, to Liz. The beautiful Liz Clayman. <laughs> Yusai Khan. Come back again. Thank you so much.